0: You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Governor David Ige says he expects to make an announcement about mandatory vaccines for state workers within this next week. It's to follow the lead of the federal government and local hospital systems who feel a sense of urgency as the COVID-19 case count soars due to the more contagious Delta variant. But first, Governor Ige talked to us this morning about how the first day back in the classrooms went in our public schools.
1: Well, certainly things seem to be going as planned. As you know, uh, Catherine, we're committed to returning students to in-person learning. We did learn a lot. Uh, Public schools all across the state uh, learned a lot, and actually across the country, about those kinds of practices that can keep our children healthy and safe. And so we're prepared. Uh, We do know that the students learn best. Uh, in in in-person setting for the most part and you know we're committed to ensuring that our you know our children can get back to the learning that they are used to.
0: You know well we did uh, you know see the smaller private schools return to the classroom in the fall and there are a couple of schools that are mandating vaccines for the students for those who can 12 and up but, you know, there, there's lots of issues. Uh, you know, there's a, the calls for mandatory vaccines, as we're starting to see in the private sector, and the federal government. Um, where are you at on that with state workers?
1: We are uh, looking at uh, the federal program and evaluating um, a mandatory vaccination program for uh, state workers as well. So, you know, we probably will be making a decision in the next week or so, uh, if not sooner.
0: As far as getting the state workers back in office, I know there are already a number of, uh, you know, those essential workers uh, that have been out there throughout the pandemic, you know, on the front lines, you know, the Labor Department included, you know, processing all those uh, unemployment claims. What kind of plan do we have to tackle the backlog of, you know, public services out there?
1: We are looking to staff up as required. We have been, um, since April, we started planning for returning workers uh, to the office, and all the agencies had developed plans to get back uh, to uh, being in the office on a regular basis. Um, We are updating our telework procedures and regulations Uh, because we do know that telework will probably be part of the options for state employees going forward. You know, we we know that uh, many were able to, you know, complete 100 percent of their responsibilities uh, through teleworking. And so we recognize that that um, should become part of uh, the options for state employees. We are staffing up specifically for unemployment insurance you know, we've authorized and Pereira's docu- um hiring uh, staff because we do know that we will continue, you know, throughout this pandemic to have higher-than-usual unemployment numbers. Uh, and we are targeting to get back to uh, DLIR taking in-person appointments uh, beginning September 7th. So, you know, Uh, planning is underway to reconfigure offices if necessary and really ensure that we can get back to -to face-to-face discussions and conversations for the UI office so that people can get their claims resolved.
0: And what kind of conversations are you having with the uh, government unions about that? You know,
1: we've, we've started discussions about the vaccine mandates and about just generally Uh, We do know that uh, state government will look different uh, moving forward throughout this pandemic. And so, you know, we continue to to share information and plans. You know, they uh, have uh, been involved with some of the review of the telework policies and and those kinds of basic agreements trying to ensure that, you know, we we do have the discussion about uh, telework and uh, other changes that we expect in the workplace. You
0: know, we did see the uh, hospitals step up uh, to mandate vaccines for their workers in the next month or so, you know, because they they need the lead time, right? If you've got the two shots, you want to make sure that everybody's got that immunity up by a certain time. Everybody's waiting for the uh, uh, full approval by the FDA. I mean, do you see making some announcement before that becomes official?
1: We are certainly evaluating that, Catherine. We we are looking at what the federal government uh, did and, you know, some of their um, programs and how they've implemented. We have had discussions with the healthcare industry as they were working through their policy changes. You know, clearly, we anticipate full approval of the vaccines, but, you know, the federal government proceeding uh, without full approval at least, you know, lets us know that they feel like they can uh, proceed in that manner. At first, we were waiting for full approval, but part of that is the situation that we're facing. You know, the Delta variant is uh, different than the original COVID-19 virus and the the other variants that we've seen. Uh, And so it's a different situation. As as you heard all of the discussions from CDC and and elsewhere, the more we learn about the Delta variant, uh, the more we recognize that it's different. Um, And uh, we're glad to see that the vaccinations are all effective against the Delta variant. Uh, But we do know now that um, those uh, who are vaccinated can still get infected. Typically, they have very, very mild cases, and, you know, it it even seems more like a normal flu. And they might think that it's not COVID just because it's so mild. Uh, But we also know that they can infect others. We we know that 97% of the cases that we're seeing right now are in unvaccinated people but there are a a few unvaccinated people and and they can spread the virus to others.
0: The Healthcare Association of Hawaii, you know, seems to believe that we need to have this sense of urgency about getting as many people vaccinated, just given the the hospital census, you know, of those that are in the ICU and and are being hospitalized because of the Delta variant.
1: We agree, we watch those numbers uh, every single day. You know, the high case counts that we're seeing, You know, and we're 10 days plus of triple-digit new cases, and, you know, it's been over 300 for much of the last week. That certainly is a major cause for concern. We know that the case counts are a leading indicator to the hospitalizations, and we do expect to see an increase in hospitalizations about a week uh, to 10 days uh, after. So that's a concern for everybody. You know, we're working with the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. The uh, hospitals and the facilities all across the state are implementing um, surge planning, you know, looking at what they can do to increase capacity of ICU units uh, as well. You know, the biggest challenge at this point in time is the staffing issues. You know, we can convert an acute care bed uh, into an ICU by adding uh, equipment and other kinds of things. Uh, but the staffing required is a lot more intensive, and many of the uh, hospitals would need uh, assistance in uh, getting the staff necessary to to be able to handle more cases. And we understand
0: that, you know, Haima and uh, the health department is working with them on a, on a potential ask for that extra support uh, that, that could be, you know, in the triple digits.
1: Yeah, we we certainly uh, have been working with HAIMA as well as FEMA on identifying what the needs are. We have initiated uh, discussions. We have a team here from the CDC that is helping uh, look at uh, what we're seeing in the surge, the data that we're seeing, and helping to develop strategies about how we can stop the the increasing numbers and and really turn the tables on uh, the virus and really start to see a reduction in the number of cases moving forward.
0: We understand that in order to manage the cases, we've got to do uh, more testing and contact tracing as we get into these face-to-face settings, whether they're in the classroom or in the office. And I know there was talk about the expired tests and waiting for some federal okay to use those. Uh, any word on that?
1: Yes, certainly we are receiving authorization for the test kit. There is a procedure that uh, will allow us to ensure that they're still valid and usable. And so uh, we continue to do that on a continuous basis as test kits um, hit the expiration date. We are working to test them to make sure that they're still uh, usable and uh, can identify the illness in those who are tested, Uh, and so far it's been going well. You know, we have been able to extend the shelf life of those test kits. There's just a lot more options, uh, Catherine. I think you've seen, you know, there's a lot of new antigen tests that can, you know, give us a result in 15 minutes uh, without any special equipment. You know, there's other point-of-care test instruments that have been distributed to all of the congregate uh, living facilities, the long-term care facilities, the jails, all now have rapid testing available uh, so that um, we can test uh, individuals who might be symptomatic and get a, a test result in 15 minutes or so. And you know that will be helpful in identifying disease and really being able to isolate and quarantine uh, individuals who become sick. There's
0: been the development with President Biden on the uh, evictions, the moratorium evictions, just, you know, in those areas where maybe there might be higher case counts. How are you looking at that?
1: You know, we are uh, looking at um, what the specific um, program is from the CDC and seeing how it uh, may apply here in the islands. It's uh, not exactly clear, so we're, we're working to get more information. You know, I do believe that we will be proceeding with ending the eviction moratorium here. We do have rent assistance programs available in every county and, you know, would certainly encourage a tenant or a landlord who has a tenant that has fallen behind in their rent payments to really apply for the rental assistance programs. You know, they are all up and running now and staffed appropriately. And we are definitely able to make a determination a lot quicker than uh, we did in the very early days of the program. And so I would encourage both landlords and tenants to uh, make an application. Uh, The new law does require uh, mandatory mediation, and so... You know, we will see when the moratorium expires. You know, those that look, those landlords that would want to proceed with eviction, you know, the tenants will have the opportunity to have an independent mediator listen to the concerns and hopefully facilitate a workable solution to everyone.
0: That was Governor David Ege talking with us this morning. He says he expects an announcement within the week about. Whether or not there'll be a mandate on vaccines for government workers. An 11th hour attempt to stem the anticipated tide of evictions comes with a renewed moratorium from the White House. Retired professor of political science, Neil Milner, is in the studio today to talk about the impacts that evictions might have on our health. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. (laughs) So, yeah, this new development yesterday.
2: Yes, the new development, which may not necessarily work either legally or administratively, both of which are important, essentially gives a 60-day grace period to evictions because the eviction moratorium would have effectively ended this Monday. What this does, if it gets through the courts, and there's reasons to think why it won't, it just puts everything on hold. So when the governor said we have a program in place, that program stays in place, but it is not yet set that whole mediation program is not going to have to worry for the next two months very much because there will be, if it stays, a moratorium.
0: Right, and, and the concern is that uh, you could put this stay in in the areas where there could be you know, hotspots, high, high clusters. Well,
2: that's, things. yeah, the, the, I mean, we don't want to go too far down the legal rules, but the way I read the justification for this, for hotspots, and what I've read is that almost everywhere becomes a hotspot. If everywhere becomes a hotspot, and this case gets to the conservative uh, majority on the Supreme Court, it's likely to run into the same difficulty that the conservative judges said before, that the, the, the delegation is too broad and that it's not going to get through. But it is an, it's a very important step to try because, first of all, there wasn't anything else. And Joe Biden just about said, we're never going to get away with this and then decided that it it was worthwhile. It gives the states, this is the big thing, it gives the states and the the local governments a chance to allocate the previously allocated billions of dollars for rent relief that has essentially gone nowhere. There's an an enormous amount of money given, and a very small fraction of, of it that's been given, for all kinds of reasons, some of which is that it relies on states and local governments. so you got to come up with some kind of procedure. Remember how difficult that was for us to do that for pandemic related money. The second thing is it, re- it 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 involves paperwork, it may even involve online applications and it involves people, both landlords and tenants because we're not talking about you know Mick Scrooge Duck's first national bank here. Most of the landlords are small landlords. It requires a kind of Understanding a process that's not very easy to do. It's on government to break through that. That's what government's supposed to be there. But the reality is, we haven't been able to give out that money, which would make a big difference.
0: I know uh, early on, uh, a lot of those providers that were working <laughs> through the process were saying, you know, they're scratching their heads. We're like, uh, they're like, well, may- maybe those landlords weren't uh, declaring the money. You know, they were just renting and and and, sure. and not- Putting in other taxes.
2: But, you know, we've gone through, if you think about people, people who are not used to dealing with government, or a better way of putting it, people who don't have to deal with government in order to survive, which is essentially people like me and, and others like that, you're asking, there are constantly difficulties about dealing with procedures. It's formidable, it's scary, and it turns out that a lot of folks who are eligible for this don't know about it. That goes for the landlords and the tenants. So you have this backlog of of, uh, potential evictions, um, and you have this money waiting, but you're not putting them together. But let's understand, and that's what, until this recent stuff happened the last day or so, this is what we were going to focus on. Let's just understand how serious eviction is as a COVID problem. And the fundamental thing is this, and it's based on research by the Eviction Lab, which does this, uh, it does a lot of data driven stuff in evictions. On the basis of nine fairly big sized cities about the size of Honolulu, it's very clear that the people who are most likely to get evicted in these cities are least likely to have vaccinations, to have the COVID vaccination. That's a public health problem because what you're doing is putting unvaccinated people whose health tends to be a little more marginal anyway on the streets, or you're making it likelier that they will double up and move in with someone else. And we know from other statistics on COVID, you double up, you raise the rates. And this has had a significant effect on, uh, on COVID fix. So you have a public health crisis potential that as one doc described it a perfect storm you have a you have a, the delta virus you have the uh, people who are more are less likely vaccinated and then you had the end of the moratorium well now you got a temporary reprieve on the moratorium but we still are going to have that same significant problem of getting the money out and of course, the broader problem of evictions and rentals and affordable housing is layered all over this.
0: Yeah, and you know, we, we did hear from uh, some listeners, some landlords, who said, you know, uh, it was a little disconcerting to get these calls from these groups, and and they're asking for our taxes, and you know, we don't trust them, and sure. So you yeah. know, there was this back and forth about, well, you know, was this was the. The system set up properly and you know was it clear to the parties that were, were being contacted you know what this was all about
2: yeah if for people who don't have to go through this like me remember what it was like to fill out that financial aid form for, <laughs> for your for kids college. when yes. they were going to college it drove me up the wall yep. <laughs> uh, and my son who's a highly educated person and the writer when he had to apply for Obamacare it drove him crazy he had to go get somebody to help him so You always have to keep that that kind of thing in mind to understand, you know, what's what's going on here. Giving away money is not necessarily so easy.
0: Right. So so the the question is, so what do we do now? You know, I mean, we've got this deadline that's looming, you know, maybe a reprieve or not, depending what the courts decide. Uh, But it's a head-scratcher as to how you get that money out. Well,
2: the first thing I would do if I were now about to have lunch with the governor, which I'm not, is to say you say you got this thing in place that works better now. Tell me more about that. You know, tell me more about the details, how you now say you can allocate the money faster. Tell me about what kind of outreach you're doing to... um, make landlords and tenants aware. By the way, if you wanna read a really interesting piece on landlord, tenants, and evictions, it's a very focused piece in today's Washington Post about a small landlord and his tenants. It's, it's uh, a wonderful human interest piece and you'll learn a whole lot about this process that destroys a lot of stereotypes.
0: So, um, gosh, so we're, we're in the, uh, the situation, the fix that we're in now uh and yeah but how else do we reach the well
2: you know messaging is 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 very important i don't it, i'm not an expert on messaging i don't think it's the same problem that you have with messaging on uh vaccines some of it is some of it is making people aware the vaccine um argument is much more ideolo- against vaccines. It's much more ideological. It's much more formed. There's much more reinforcement on social media. Th- this is about people who, to some extent, are clueless, feel like they're ineffective, and face a kind of procedure that's pretty tough. There are easier ways to give away money. For sure, you can give away money. Uh, the downside of that is, that is that you open up the sieve too widely and that people who don't deserve it uh, and when we give away money, we're always trying to find that balance. And welfare, it was always keep people from getting money who didn't deserve it, and you had very complicated procedures. But that's that's the problem, and I, and I don't know how the state is going to address it. But that's what the problem is.
0: Yeah, I know. Just just the whole thing with vaccines, you know, you had the the fear factor. Sure. And then you have the enticements. (laughs) But in
2: this case, I don't think it's a fear factor. It's a knowledge factor. It's it's an efficacy factor, thinking that you can surmount the difficulties there. Um, And it's um,
0: a message factor. Yeah. We'll see what happens uh, after next week. But thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome. We were talking to Neil Milner, retired professor of political science. He joins us as a contributing editor with his segment, The Long View.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Mānoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more, scheidler.hawaii.edu. When gymnast Simone Biles cited mental health as the reason for withdrawing from almost all her Olympic events, Harry Edwards understood exactly what she meant.
4: the fear of black advancement in the white mainstream, the aspirations of black society that are placed upon the shoulders of athletes,
1: that's a lot that the white athlete doesn't have to deal with.
5: A Meghna Chakrabarty. that's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, Following the World.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pro Service Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash covidhelp or by calling 808-207-7634.
0: morning. We take a peek at the campaign war chest of Honolulu's mayor. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jed on the line today. Good morning. Good morning. So yeah the mayor collected quite a bit of cash.
4: <laughs> yeah the election may be over but the money does keep flowing for politicians at all levels of government. I took a look at Mayor Rick Blangiardi's report this week, and he brought in a significant haul, $639,000, and that's from January 1st of this year through June 30th, and that's from a bunch of uh, donors, 170, I believe, um, much in the construction sector, um, and a lot of them were about $4,000 a piece.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, because just in the first six months of him being in office, Uh, so where'd all this money go?
4: Well, most of it actually went to the mayor. Um, He had loaned him his own campaign $450,000, and his wife, uh, Karen Chang, loaned the campaign $15,000. So they kind of got their money back that they had invested in the campaign. Um, Some of the rest of it went towards more fundraising. Um, The mayor held two fundraisers at Little Joe's Steakhouse, so they had to spend twenty three grand for catering, another twenty grand for marketing, and a couple hundred on thank you cards.
0: So uh, of the donations that he got, though, uh, from his first six months, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know go down the list where'd this money come from?
4: It's a lot of prominent people. You kind of see the same names over and over again when you look at these campaign finance reports. Um, a lot of uh, money from construction and contracting executives from companies like Nan Inc., Castle and Cook, D.R. Horton, uh, Dura Constructors, Avalon Development. Some company employees were particularly generous. You see uh, a lot of donations from their employees. Um, those include the McNaughton Group, R.M. Towel, uh and Royal Contracting, as well as a few others.
0: Okay, so lots of uh, uh, big uh, construction companies, uh, engineering companies, uh, uh, and and I know I've seen some criticism that oh, uh, some of these folks are you know pro rail and they want the project to continue.
4: Yeah, it's always tough to know for sure what motivates people to give money to a campaign, especially, you know, when the election has just ended um, and they're not like buying campaign signs and buying commercials. Um, It's sort of uh, a different motivation at this point, but uh, can't say for sure what exactly that is. Um, but for sure, it's, it's a lot of money. It's you know hundreds of thousands of dollars the mayor brought in um, just in his first six months. It's actually more than the prospective uh, gubernatorial candidates brought in in the same period. Um, my colleague, Blaise Lovell, took a look at those candidates' campaign reports. Um, so Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, for example, raised uh, more than $400,000 um, in that period, from January through June um, and former mayor Kurt Caldwell brought in a little bit over 9,000
0: yeah I mean and, and we don't know for sure if uh, Blangiardi will go for a second term but it is certainly uh, interesting you know just to see who gives
4: um, and when they give right right I mean it's it's tough to say. Um, it He hasn't announced whether he is running for re-election. The, the fundraisers are technically filed as if it's for the 2024 election. Um, the mayor hasn't made any comment about whether he'll be running for another term. But, you know, the people keep donating and uh, the campaigns keep accepting. So that is how it works. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I know that
0: the mayor's race, uh, the, the city council races, too, are nonpartisan. Uh, but it is interesting to see, you know, the, the names, you know, that, that that come up, you know, typically, uh, big donors to the Democratic Party, you know, Walter Dodds, uh Iwomoto, uh, That you know, those uh, families traditionally, I think, have supported a lot of the Democratic uh, Party candidates.
4: That's true. And you'll see some of those same names on City Council Chair Tommy Waters' donation list as well. He brought in a little bit over 100000 in the last six months. The other council members, um, much smaller amounts. But it's definitely something we'll continue to keep an eye on and report on.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, with Josh Green and, and Kirk Caldwell, they have their uh, eyes set on the governor's race. Uh, uh, and then, you know, there's talk about uh Vicki Cayetano also jumping in, so lots of, of uh, potential candidates down the road and and lots of time and uh, lots of people to—donors uh, to tap, I guess. But thanks yes, so much. Exactly. Thanks so much, Christina.
4: Thanks,
0: Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's reality check. To read her story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Moloka'i Hawaiian homesteaders have been battling the state for recognition uh, of their water rights uh, for more than 30 years. H.V.R.'s Kuvehirishi Rishi has been following the story and joins us with this update. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine.
6: Uh, yes, on Moloka'i, uh, after nearly 30 years of sort of litigation with the State Commission on Water Resource Management, uh, the commission actually did approve uh, last week Uh, the allocation of about a half a million gallons of water a day from the Kualapu Aquifer uh, to be used for current and future uh, homesteaders there on Moloka'i. And so part of the battle uh, was involving, under the state water code, the HHL, or the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, uh, is given first rights to water, meaning uh, they have sort of this prioritized uh, DIPs, if you will, on the water that is there uh, before, for example, private uh, companies go in and take their share. Uh, But since 1993, uh, the Water Commission really struggled to uphold that that right. And so there were about 200 to 300 homestead families in the area who were awarded lots but could not move onto those lots because uh, the department could not guarantee that there would be sufficient water right for for living uh, in this area. So it wasn't until uh, July of this year uh, that that right uh, was was recognized. And uh, we spoke to a Hawaiian homestead farmer, Glenn Tevis, uh, who's really been there from the beginning. And he says this this opens up the opportunity uh, not just for those hundreds of families to get onto land that they uh, were already awarded but it could mean additional homesteading opportunities on Moloka'i and possibly uh, statewide. Here's Tevis.
3: Hawaiian homes has a lot of other areas that will need to be requesting for water. You got Honokawai and Kulehonui on Maui. You got areas um, on the south shore of Kauai. You got um, Anahola expansion. You have a lot of areas that Hawaiian homes will be requesting for water. And we cannot allow this to happen again. It's bad enough trying to get homesteaders on the land, but you get them on the land and they can't get water. This is just totally ridiculous.
0: So what happens oh, wow. now? Should... You, you know, okay. we've got this decision from the commission to provide more water. Uh, you know, what's the next step?
6: So the next step is uh, there are also competing applications for that same aquifer i not competing at this point, but uh, others. Uh, so Maui Department of Water Supply uh, to supply water to county for county needs and also Molokai Properties or Molokai Ranch, which has been a, a large user of water since uh, the 90s as well. In fact, uh, a competing factor at the time that the DHHL went ahead and uh, tried to have this additional water Set aside for homesteaders uh, was Molokai Ranch, who also put in a request uh, for water from that aquifer. And so the commission really struggled over the last couple of decades to try to balance those, uh, what seemed like competing interests. Uh, But time and and time again, the state Supreme Court uh, sided uh, with homesteaders and, and with DHHL in trying to uphold that first rights to water, so the State Water Commission has said that they will be taking up the applications from Maui County Department of Water Supply and also Molokai Ranch, and uh, I should say Molokai Ranch is also uh, wrapped up in uh, other proceedings with the State Water Commission regarding its water diversions with another group uh, of homesteaders there on Molokai. So this matter is also expected uh, to be decided on by the commission in the future.
0: Well, I mean, nothing's easy, huh? <laughs>
6: <laughs> no, and, and I think uh, you know something to point out that makes this particular situation unique uh, is that in many cases, for example, the recent court ruling on the, um, Maui for Alexander and Baldwin, uh, its water diversions. Um, that in this case, the commission has. Um, struggled for a while but is taking a more proactive approach uh to managing and making sure that these these water rights are upheld and i think that's something that uh while it did take time uh is really uh perhaps signifying a, a break from from the past where everything needs to be checked by the courts and perhaps the commission can can take that step and, and um make sure that things happen uh,
0: sooner. Yeah, I mean, it is complicated, right? Striking that balance. Uh, you know, we've yet to hear from A and B or uh, Mahupono uh, about the al- water allocation there. Mm. Uh, you know, but it, obviously a win on Maui for the small far- uh, farmers, the taro farmers, uh, on that right. uh, on that court decision uh, from Friday. And uh, I think there's still more proceedings, even with DLNR uh, on the A and B permits. So that that.
6: Yeah, that victory may be a temporary for a bit. Uh, by the end of this month, uh, we will see have another um, proceeding on the environmental impact statement that, that um, Alexander and Baldwin had put together for their water lease uh, application. And so that is sure to uh, be another step for the commission in terms of figuring out how to manage water as a public uh, resource here in, in Hawaii. Interesting mm-hmm. to see.
0: Yeah, complicated issue, but very important issue um, for so many people across the state. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Yes, Marla. That was H.P.R.'s Kuvehi Rishi. Find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We are in the forest training our gaze on a hardy game bird commonly found on the Big Island, Maui, and Oahu. First introduced in the 1960s, the bird's breeding system has undergone a radical change in the islands. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart fills us in on the polygamous, yes, polygamus, college uh, pheasant. And mahalo to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, uh, for the calls heard in today's Monu Minute.
7: Kalish pheasants are native to the mountains of southern Asia and were introduced to the Pu'uwa'a'a area on the island of Hawaii in 1962. Since then these game birds have become very common in all forests up to about 7,000 feet in elevation on the Big Island and now can even be found in the Waianais on Oahu and Haleakalā on Maui. Male college are glossy blue-black with a bright red mask on their face, a white crest of feathers on their head, and a long tail. Females have similar features but are mostly brown instead of black. The loud calls of these birds are very distinctive and sound a bit like the grunts and squeals of pigs. Kaleesh love to feed on fruits of a variety of plant species, and unfortunately are known to spread invasive plants such as banana polka, strawberry guava, and clidemia into our native forests, with many of these species outcompeting the native plants over time. Kaleesh pheasants are known to be monogamous in Asia, but in Hawaii, recent studies have shown that their breeding system has changed to polygamy, with one female forming long-term bonds with up to six males. These males all cooperatively help the female at the nest, apparently because there's now so many colleges in our forests that there just aren't enough available territories for them to be monogamous anymore. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the biology department at UH Hilo.
3: Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private, and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, relaunching tour and talk story, docent-led museum tours and discussion exploring historical context and cultural relevance of selected artworks. Registration at HonoluluMuseum.org.
4: Hey, it's Courtney Thomas from the membership team here at HPR. We're currently conducting a survey of all our station listeners and members. Your input guides the station and helps us plan for the coming months and years. So if you haven't already, check your email inbox for the survey link or head to hawaiipublicradio.org survey. Your input really helps guide this station. And as always, mahalo for your support.
0: would like to wish happy birthday to the U.S. Coast Guard. We thought we would stop to reflect on the history of the branch, whose mission includes maritime safety, national security, and environmental stewardship. Its motto is always ready. Gary Thomas is the executive director of the Foundation for Coast Guard History. He tells us the Coast Guard's presence in the islands is said to date back to the 1800s. Thomas, a retired commander in the Coast Guard and chief of electronic navigation, was fortunate to live at the Diamond Head Lighthouse as the spouse of the retired Rear Admiral Carrie Batson Thomas. She was a Coast Guard commander of District 14, which covers the Pacific and is the largest area of responsibility for the Coast Guard. We reached out to the D.C. area, where the couple lives now, to reflect on Coast Guard history and the ties to the Omega Station and the controversial stairway in the Ko'olau Mountain Range. Here's Gary.
5: It is the two hundred and thirty first birthday of the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard tracks its birthday to the signing of a law uh, crafted during the first Congress, which included authorization and appropriation for ten cutter- rigged sailing vessels to enforce Coast Guard customs. Or, um, and when you think about it, is, it's it's got an interesting loop there is because one of the reasons we were successful in the Revolutionary War was all of our smugglers who were able to evade the British and we had fought the war in part about taxes. And so we won the war, and the first thing we realized, we were deeply in debt and that we needed to enforce customs. And suddenly some of the people who were heroes for evading the British blockade were now being asked to pay taxes on what they were bringing in. And so those first 10 cutters were what was supposed to be the enforcement agent for the customs and treasury, and they became the basis of the Coast Guard that we know today.
0: And the duties of the U.S. Coast Guard, I mean, gosh, you cover so much territory, and you do everything from nabbing the illegal foreign fishers who are fishing in our waters to seizing drugs.
5: And we do it on all seven continents and the, all the seas in between. There are 11 statutory missions for the Coast Guard that are written into the law, and they are widely varying from law enforcement and environmental protection, to all the defense operations that you think of when we work with the Navy or the other defense operations.
0: You know, you have a a unique perspective here in Hawaii because you lived here, (laughs) and you can appreciate the Coast Guard history out here in the Pacific. One of the things that we want to spotlight is uh, the Omega Station and the Coast Guard history behind what is now known as the Stairway to Heaven. So recap for us what that part of history is about.
5: So it goes back to base routes is World War II when the Navy established a, a communication station in the same location. Uh, they needed to be able to talk to their submarines that were deep in the Pacific, thousands of miles from Hawaii. And the best method for doing that was transmitting a radio signal in the frequency range known as very low frequency. For a lot of technical reasons involving physics, mathematics, space weather, and a whole bunch of other disciplines that nobody in your audience but maybe three or four would care, Suffice to say that a low-frequency transmitter needs a very tall tower to transmit that signal. At the time, towers topped out at about 600 feet, and that wasn't enough for what they wanted to accomplish there. And so some really smart people figured out if they strung a cable between the ridges of the crater and then hung an antenna down from that to the transmitter, it would work. It It was an amazing engineering marvel at the time.
0: And that type of uh, radio transmitter, I mean, uh, you know, it's been referred to as the secret signals of the Ko'olau, because they they were doing some secret stuff.
5: They were. And it was interesting is because the choice of low frequency means that the submarine could listen to the radio signals underwater without having to come above surface where they became vulnerable. And so as years went on after the war, uh, the Navy didn't need that radio transmitter station anymore. But they had begun testing a new radio navigation system called Omega. And Omega used similar very low frequencies and had a need for a very tall tower that the canyon represented. And so that system was developed in the 50s and 60s by the Navy, principally to guide their aircraft during the Cold War, if the war ever broke out. Um, And so they repurposed that station. Coast Guard got involved with it, and in the early seventies, the Coast Guard moved in and began operating the system in 1975.
0: So that Omega Station um, access to that was a little tricky, right? There were wooden stairs that were built Correct. in that area. Initially,
5: it was wooden, and and actually there were some carved steps chocked out of the rock. There was some concrete area, but they were eventually replaced with the aluminum and metal stairing that uh, most people are familiar who have gone up there. And it has been replaced over time, but it has not been touched. For a number of decades at this point and that's why it has fallen into disrepair but Coast Guard shut the station down in 1997 because the system was just no longer needed the, the biggest thing the steps were used for was not the actual operation of the tower but rather for the anchor points holding the cabling and the antenna itself and so as they no longer needed the system they took down the wire antenna hanging from the cable and everything else and then just had no need for it at that point and didn't put any scarce resources into maintaining Uh, stairway to nothing from a coast guard perspective
0: okay and at that point then uh the coast guard stepped away and it the property was then taken over by the city
5: correct and before that the coast guard over uh, over some earlier years had allowed people to go up if they signed a waiver that was kind of an acknowledgement of what the local community wanted to do by the local commands later on that was stopped because the coast guard realized It was a pretty significant liability to people getting hurt up there. And uh, they didn't want to have people being sued, the federal government being sued by anybody who got injured.
0: So, gosh, yeah. I mean, nobody knew at the time that with social media and all that the stairs would become this destination. I mean, to some it was an attractive nuisance. But to recreational hikers, I mean, some of those vistas just can't be uh, enjoyed anywhere else.
5: Absolutely. I mean, and and to the Coast Guard lawyers, that term attractive nuisance" is the key thing is that it draws people in there because it is such a spectacular view. And Hawaii is not unique in that regard is because there were eight stations around the world, including several that were towers that were 1,200 feet tall. And in Lemoore, North Dakota, I just spoke with somebody at a Coast Guard reunion who lived there. And that was a sense of pride for them, this 1,200-foot tower. They had the Omega Hotel the Omega Plaza in the city, there was an Omega room in the restaurants. So it's not unique to Hawaii that there has been a local community really proud of what that represents.
0: The Omega stations went away because GPS came on the scene. That's
5: correct, yep. That's the main reason. And there was also, at the same time, there was another radio navigation system that the Coast Guard also operated called Loran C, and, and there was no need for three systems. By that point, the Navy wasn't using it. It was mostly civilian ships and civilian aircraft.
0: So, gosh, as the future of the stairs gets debated, I've never been up the stairs. I don't know that you have.
5: I desperately wanted to, but uh, it would not be great if uh, I got arrested and the uh, admiral running the Coast Guard for Hawaii's husband was in the newspaper. So I never actually made the effort.
0: OK. All right. It'd uh, be the wrong kind of headline. Exactly. And so as you uh, reflect back then on the Coast Guard history and the know, know that the remnants of those stairs are part of that, what are your thoughts?
5: It's a, a tough thing, I mean, because you know how much I love Hawaii and the ability to see that. And, and so I fully understand everyone's desire to do that. But I also understand from having served in the government for a number of years is that there's a significant cost in keeping it safe. It's always a significant risk. And so you have the standard government trade-off of risk and benefit and i'm i'm not going to be the one to to make the decision for the city obviously but i would hope that that some way they could find a happy medium that keeps everybody happy because it is by all the pictures i've ever seen uh, and having flown over that area just a, a stunning view that is not available in many places in the islands
0: and it is a piece of u.s coast guard history
5: it is and and, and hawaiian history and navy history
0: well, hats off to the Coast Guard today. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, th- and thank you. And, uh, and stay safe. I will do that. All right. Aloha.
5: Aloha to you, too.
0: And that was Gary Thomas, retired Coast Guard commander and executive director of the Foundation for Coast Guard History. Today, Coasties marked the agency's 231st birthday, and we were reflecting on the history of the Haiku Stairs, also known as the Stairway to Heaven, as the city ponders its future. We are all out of time. Up tomorrow, we hear about uh, how the Friends of Haiku Stairs was first formed. More than 30 years later, the future of the Kapu Stairway could come to a head. What do you think about mandatory vaccines or the Stairway to Heaven? Are your children happy or scared to be back in school? Leave your feedback on our TalkBack line, 808-792-8217. And if you want to listen back to something you heard today, find our archive shows online. I'm Katherine Cruz, join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.